Yeah, just, just by way of reminder, we do have um, our children's church right now because we'll be in, in Proverbs 5 and the kind of the age-sensitive nature of um, pr- what Proverbs 5 uh, talks about. So yeah, so go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. Last week, if you recall, I mentioned a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've never heard of him or listened to his sermons or read one of his books, you should. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably one of the best preachers uh, in the 20th century, uh, pastor in Wales for a long time. Awesome, awesome dude. But one of the things that that makes Martin Lloyd-Jones' life spectacular is the way that he was saved and, and called to ministry. See, Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, this really smart guy, and he was his doctor, and he was a very gifted doctor. He was on a trajectory of becoming like this very prominent, very famous doctor. Uh, he was uh, a student of this, this chief like doctor at London's most prestigious hospital, right? And, and the chief doctor that he studied under like would treat the royal family, is that kind of thing. It's a big deal. And, and here's what got him. See, Martin Lloyd-Jones also trained other medical students, and, and he would take these students to the poorest parts of London so that his students could treat the patients there. And, and he noticed like the ungodliness you know, among these poor parts of London. But that's not really what, what got to him the most. What got to him was that he saw the same ungodliness in the rich uh, wealthy social circles that he was a part of. He didn't see any difference between his rich patients and his wealthy social circles and the poorest parts of London. One of his biographies says that as Lloyd-Jones moved with his chief doctor in these circles, he found such people altogether as needy as any whom he had seen in London's poorest districts. The real problem, which he now saw, was neither medical nor intellectual. It was one of moral emptiness and spiritual hollowness. You see, what, what Martin Lloyd-Jones began to see and what he needed all along was a bigger and better understanding of why we were created. You know, we're created for something more than this. Our, our society, and you know, most of you know this, right? Our society is confused, very confused about sexuality and marriage, right? You can find some of the world's worst marriage advice online. You know, I'm I, reading uh, through a BuzzFeed article, which, you know, contains like some of the worst relationship advice I've ever read, about 21 things people need to do or to talk about before marriage. And, and yes, it is important to discuss things about marriage, right? You don't want to just bring assumptions into marriage. You know, you, you need to talk about those things. But I, I get the sense from reading like these articles and the expectations people place on relationships is that they expect you to be perfect, right? If we don't align on all of these like crazy matters, then like we just shouldn't get married at all. What you find conspicuously lacking in articles like that is the need for grace to show undeserved kindness and forgiveness to one another. And, and I understand, right, as, as we, you read articles like that, as you see stuff in the culture, I understand the place for indignation. Right? Stuff like that just makes me so mad. 
especially how terrible the advice can be. But what our culture needs, just like Martin Lloyd-Jones needed, is a bigger and better understanding of why we were created. And a big part of that is a bigger and more beautiful understanding of sexuality. And church, that starts with us. It starts with us. What we need is a better and more beautiful understanding of sexuality and marriage, even if you've been married for 60 years. And what we need is to share how wonderful and how satisfying this is. God's design for marriage and sexuality is good and it's beautiful and it's satisfying. We need to start understanding that our culture won't be shamed into this, but we can win them over to it by displaying how good it is. We must offer them something better and more beautiful. So what Proverbs 5 does is it functions to to provide a hedge around faithful sexuality and then to provide a vision for satisfying sexuality. So Proverbs 5 really functions in two ways. It provides a hedge around what is faithful sexuality and then it provides a vision for what is satisfying sexuality. So let's turn into Proverbs 5 and find how we might walk deeper in the wisdom of God-glorifying, faithful, satisfying sexuality. Let's read Proverbs 5. You can follow along in your Bibles uh, or on the screen, or you can listen. Proverbs 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion And your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is as bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son? with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. 
He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his, his great folly, he is led astray. So, one of my favorite historical figures is George Washington. George Washington's an awesome dude. And one of the things that distinguished George Washington from the other fr- framers was that he was very imposing. And, and part of his imposing nature, he was a big dude. But he was also, like, very quiet. Tight-lipped. Showed very little emotion. In fact, that's one reason why he was, people chose him to be president is because he seemed the least likely to want it because he's very impassive, very stoic. Uh, and, and this is part of what led people to fear and respect him. But George Washington also had uh, a couple of weak spots, and one weak spot was actually with younger women. George Washington could not help himself around younger women. He loved to flirt and to dance with with all these younger women. And there's no evidence, and I don't think he was ever unfaithful to his wife, but he loved to dally and to to just flirt with, with other younger, beautiful women. The thing about that kind of lifestyle, though, is it's like swimming in a shark shark infested waters you can't keep that up forever or they'll devour you in the end and so that's why our first action is to be equipped against seductive pleasure be equipped against seductive pleasure solomon warns in in verse one my son be attentive to my wisdom incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge so obviously we've talked a lot about wisdom since we've been in, been in Proverbs, right? It's a book about wisdom. And, and we might be tempted to think of wisdom as this abstract kind of knowledge, right? Like there's this knowledge kind of floating around here and we download it into our brains. No, wisdom is not abstract, but has real world consequences. So wisdom isn't just knowing all the right stuff, but living in the right ways. That's wisdom. And one of the main ways this comes out, one of the main ways wisdom is lived out is in the realm of human sexuality. Especially sexuality. And so why does Solomon urge his son to be attentive to wisdom? Look at at verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It's important for Solomon to, to use like lips and, and speech here, right? He's not talking about, you know, like, so if you're, what, what's the first thing you notice about a woman? Oh, maybe her like eyes or her hair or something. He's not saying like oh, lips. Like, no, it's, you, it's important for him to say lips because walking in wisdom is learning to differentiate between competing voices. Right? We've seen already in Proverbs, especially chapter one, we're introduced to a woman Wisdom. And what does the woman wisdom do? She cries aloud. She raises her voice. And here and in other places, the woman folly or even the forbidden woman, they're kind of interchangeable. They are loud and seductive. So it doesn't come down to who is the loudest, but who we choose to listen to, who we want to listen to. And while, yes, 
the forbidden woman here is about adultery, before you think, I don't, I don't flirt with other women, I'm not tempted to adultery, the forbidden woman represents inviting any kind of third party into your marriage. So that includes a third party in your minds or a third party on your computer screen. The forbidden woman is any sexual pleasure that is out of bounds for God's design for sexuality. That's what the forbidden woman means here. When Paul writes in places like Galatians 5, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, he means any kind of sexual practice that violates God's design. It includes adultery and lust and pornography, fornication and sexual abuse. Any sexual activity, sexual practice that occurs outside of his design. And this is important because sexual sin doesn't come to us with horns and fang teeth. It doesn't appear to us as it truly is. It comes to us dressed and as appealing as a feast. Her lips, look, he says her lips drip, honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. It's seductive. And the thing about sexual sin, not only does it come to us appealing to us, but also it comes to us unexpectedly. In hours alone. And in times of weakness. To offer us respite. When you argue with your spouse. Or your sex life is dry. How tempting is it. To get a little pleasure. That you're not finding in marriage. Just a look. Just a peek. The grass, the grass looks greener. And that's why it is so important to be on your guard. To be equipped. Verse 4. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Some of my favorite movies are the Jason Bourne movies. Love Jason Bourne because he's always alert and he's always aware of like the closest weapon, whether it's a rolled up magazine or what else, and he's always aware of the exits. Church, it's not a question of if this happens to you, but when, and what you're going to do to guard against it. The moment you think, I don't have to worry about this, is when you are most vulnerable. Recognize that every single ounce of pleasure you could possibly get, your wildest fantasies fulfilled, are this in reality. Bitter, painful death. Any ounce of pleasure you seek outside the bounds of God's design for sexuality and marriage, any ounce of pleasure is this. 
The look you innocently steal is death in disguise. It doesn't matter if you're saved or not. I used to think that because I was a Christian, sin affected me differently. No, sin affects you the same way whether you're saved or not. In the end, it will kill you. It will kill your faith and your soul. And God loves us enough to give us these warning signs. So be equipped, be on your guard, fight with all your might, recognize the pool and the danger of seductive pleasure. Closely related to that in our second action is to be aware of costly consequences. The Bible gives many motivations for obeying God, right? And, and out of the, on the outset, I want to say the most important and the most foundational, and if you like this one, the others don't matter, right? We want to obey God out of love for Him, right? But there are other uh, motivations that we have for obeying God, like so hope for reward and even fear of consequences. Randy Alcorn He wrote a wonderful book called The Purity Principle, and I would encourage you to read it. He wrote, it's completely fitting to hold out the prospect of grief and self-destruction as reasons to avoid impurity. That's exactly what Proverbs does. One of our church's elders admitted to me, there have been times when I've had serious temptations toward adultery. I'd like to say that my love for God and for my, my wife were enough to keep me from falling, but it came down to sheer terror. I was certain that if I traveled that road, God would let my life turn miserable. Randy Alcorn continues, the fear of God shouldn't scare us out of our wits. It should scare us into them. And that's verses 7 to 14. Now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Solomon is is holding out the end of sexual sin. In fact, Garrett Kell wrote probably one of the scariest and most helpful exercise to picture what this means. Now, I'm going to read. I'm going to read it, and it's it's heavy stuff, but I think it's helpful for us. Garrett Kell wrote, "I, I want to walk you through a scene to see what lies ahead on the path of sin. This scenario is aimed at fellow pastors, but the idea is applicable to all. Envision yourself." calling together your elders and sitting in their midst, telling them how you have betrayed their trust. See their sunken faces and feel their broken hearts. Listen to them consider how they'll tell the church. Imagine the congregation's confusion and how it will affect those who've heard you say so often, 
that Jesus is better than anything else. Imagine how the name of Christ will be mocked in your community and beyond. Then I want you to picture walking out to your car and getting in. Drive down the road near your house and circle your neighborhood a few times. Picture the place where you walk the dog with your children in the evenings. Now pull into your driveway and walk up to the door of your home. Hear the scampering feet of your children running up to you and putting their arms around your legs saying, Daddy's home. See the way they love and trust you. Drink that in deep. Now tell them to go outside and play because you must talk to Mommy about something. As you walk to the kitchen where she's faithfully going about her day, look at those smiling pictures on the wall. Remember the happy days you shared together. Lead her by the hand to your bedroom where you used to make love. Ask her to have a seat. Feel your heart scamper and the lump form in your throat. See her eyes ask what's wrong. Then watch her weep as you tell her you've been unfaithful. Hear her wail, see her sob, feel her hit your chest and fall to her knees in despair. Imagine the phone call to her parents and to yours. Hear the silence on the phone as they take in what you've told them. Imagine the day you gather your children and sit them down to explain why mommy and daddy are going to spend some time apart and sell the house they love so much. See yourself taking down those smiling pictures from the wall and taping up the moving boxes, unsure if you'll ever open them again. Do you see it? Sin doesn't tell you about those days, does it? There is no such thing as sin or sexual sin without costly consequences. Flee temptation. Flee pornography. Flee flirtation. Be afraid because sin will cost you all that you have. For a moment of pleasure, you will spend a lifetime and even an eternity in misery. Just for one moment. Be aware of costly consequences. But there's more. Earlier I mentioned how our culture's view on sex and marriage is all confused. And one reason is our fault, I think. Because we often talk about sex in hushed words. As if it's altogether forbidden or bad. And all we've done, right, for the most part, there's a few exceptions, but we've talked about how sex is bad, bad, bad. And the world just doesn't find that appealing. No, sex is good. Like, God designed sex. He doesn't blush when a husband and wife have sex. They are doing what He designed them to do. And a lot of movies and TV shows, like, they want to depict how, like, good sex is with, like, multiple partners. But we need more people to talk about how awesome married sex is. So, third, our action is to be blessed and faithful pleasure. Be blessed and faithful pleasure. Solomon says, right here in Scripture, what would normally make any of us blush. I mean, look at verse 15. 
drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well? Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets. He's talking about sex, by the way. So, and then verse 18, if that wasn't clear to you, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In other words, what Solomon has done is he's put this hedge around what is faithful sexual pleasure and within that hedge he says, enjoy! Enjoy! He asked in verse 20, right? Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And why embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Someone is like, why do you feel the need to go there when you can fulfill all your desires right here? Look, you've got a playground right here, man. you got a playground. Enjoy the playground. Go swing on the swings. Go play tetherball. Play dodgeball. Climb on the monkey bars. Enjoy the playground. And so these verses right here are permission to enjoy each other to the maximum benefit. Don't make it hard to enjoy one another. Give way to your sexual passions for your spouse. Solomon says be intoxicated by your spouse. What he means is seduce each other. Wives, you know what your husband's like? Husbands, one of the sexiest things you can do is clean the house. Seduce each other, explore, play. The Bible's not ashamed of this. Even in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Scripture gives its blessing on faithful, married, sexual pleasure. I've read before an article that in order to help your, your kids fight against sexual temptation and, and, and pornography and that kind of thing, that you should let them see you, they should see you flirt with each other. They should see you kiss each other. So that, right, they can see the delights and the satisfaction of faithful sexuality practiced within marriage. Look, they're getting this message, right, from the culture, from the world. That this is how sex should be practiced. This is how this thing should be done. When the message from the home should be, no, this child, this is how it's done. And it's awesome. And that's what Solomon's doing, right? Like, this is exactly what Solomon's doing. We shouldn't be ashamed of how good God has made married sex. All other forms are just going to leave you miserable and empty. Married sex is blessed and satisfying. So wisdom helps us to live sexually faithful, sexually satisfying lives. And you don't need a new spouse to do this. You, they, your spouse doesn't need a new body. Wisdom already has what we're looking for. And that's the last warning of this chapter, verse 21. For a man's eyes are before the man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, 
and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. In other words, you can't blame giving in to sexual sin and temptation on your spouse because God has already provided you with what you're looking for. It starts with you. Be blessed in faithful pleasure. This leaves, obviously, a lingering question. What if I don't have? A faithful avenue to be satisfied sexually. Right? What if you're single or widowed or divorced? It can be a painful struggle. I don't want to minimize the longing for sexual intimacy and sexual satisfaction. Those are things that God has wired us with. But the answer for you and for everyone in this room this is for married or not married, is that in Christ, we already have what we're looking for. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In heaven, the, de the desire for sexual satisfaction will be over because that desire was always meant to point to the only source that can meet humanity's deepest, most longest lasting desire. It was always meant to point to something greater, a satisfaction and a joy and a hope and a peace in the person and work of Christ. It's finding satisfaction in God because God is faithful to you. God hates unfaithfulness because unfaithfulness is an assault on His character. It's as if to say one member of the Trinity would have to go outside of the Godhead to find satisfaction. As if the Son weren't satisfied enough in the Father. It's unthinkable. God delights in faithfulness because in the Father and the Son and the Spirit there is joyful, satisfying, eternal satisfaction in one another. And in Christ, we are invited into that same eternal pleasure. And even though all of us, right, all of us in this room invite third parties into our union with God, whether it's by sexual sin or, or other kinds of sins or idols, we all invite third parties into our union with God, but God stays faithful to us because He punished Christ on the cross as if Christ were guilty of that. So we delight in God's faithfulness to us and His provision for us in Jesus. And not only was Jesus crushed for us, but Jesus is everything for us. Everything that we're looking for is found in Him. So whether it's remaining faithful in marriage or faithful in singleness, it all ultimately comes down to one thing, finding in Christ everything we're looking for. And enjoying the hedge that He puts around us and enjoying where we are, where that hedge is whether it's in marriage or in singleness. It doesn't mean pleasures and desires and longings or even temptations will go away. It means when they do come, 
you know you already have a feast set before you that's immensely satisfying where true and lasting joy is found. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good God. You don't leave us hanging out to dry. You don't leave us on our own to figure out where our satisfaction lies. You provide everything in yourself for our satisfaction. And you give us so much earthly kinds of satisfaction, whether it's, it's good food or good music or, or art or, or whatever, or, or marriage, God, you give us so many things that we might be satisfied and find our satisfaction in you. Father, help us to flee sexual temptation. Help us to be afraid. God, help us to delight in our spouses. Most of all, most of all, help us to find our delight in Christ. The only kind of delight that's long-lasting. The only kind of delight that protects. The only kind of delight that truly gives life. And God, help us to be a people who offer the world this better, more satisfying, more beautiful vision of why we were created. In Jesus' name, amen.